everyone. I'm Melody Maraca. And I'm Bill C. Welcome back to the Into the Heart of U2 podcast, where two longtime fans discuss U2 music album by album and tour by tour, the fan experience and the perception of U2 and cultural consciousness. Right. Melanie and I, we came of age with U2. We saw it all happen in real time. And as we sit here in 2023, we still care about this band, but we're concerned about their legacy. So as we take a trip back through the band's history, we're going to try and place it in proper context and ultimately get to the bottom of whether U2 is one of the greats of all time or are the haters right after all. Yeah, and on part one in our episode on Octung Baby, we discuss what the band were doing in between Rattle and Hum and the recording of this record and the shift in dynamics within the band when it came to writing songs. And we also offered up a few theories on why that happened. Um, we also discussed the recording of Octung Baby, including the difficult sessions in Hansa Studios in Germany in the wake of the ending of the Cold War. And now what we're going to do um, is do that thing we do and discuss the album song by song. All right, then. We've got a lot to get to here. So let's get into it, Melody. Um even the most ardent fans who stood by U2 through the difficult October record with the heavy Christian lyrics, um, or U2 going to art school with Brian Eno on Unforgettable Fire, or the overexposure post-Joshua Tree and the head-scratcher that was Rattle and Hum, there was nothing to really prepare you for the moment you put on track one of Octane Baby and heard the sound of the chopping down of the Joshua Tree. This is Zoo Station. <laughs> You know, like a lot of other fans prior to the release of the album, I had heard some of the stuff from the Salome bootleg and, of course, you know, the first single, The Fly, which came out almost a month prior um, to the record. But all that really didn't prepare me for Octung Baby. Um, you know, when you hear Zoo Station now, it sounds just like a U2 song, but you got to remember what it was like back then. This was a different world and a different band from the Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum. Um, Adam Clayton said of the opening, uh, when people put on the record, we wanted their first reaction to be either this record is broken or this can't be the new U2 record. There's been a mistake. Yeah, for sure. And, and Edge said when Flood introduced the distorted drums into the mix, they were all so excited because it sounded like a band falling apart. Just what Polly Graham wanted to hear after they spent <laughs> 300 million bucks to buy Island Records, which, let's be honest, was basically to get the privilege of U2 um, right. on the roster. Um, but that ended up working out okay for everyone, now, didn't it? Yeah, just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I'll just say, after Rattle and Hum's totally bizarre choice for an opening track in Helter Skelter, here, Zoo Station joins the ranks of I Will Follow, Sunday Bloody Sunday, and Where the Streets Have No Name is perhaps their greatest opening statement of intent in their entire catalog. A jarring and disorienting manifesto of the new U2. And like on most songs on Octane Baby, 
Sue Station has multiple meanings, and like most of the songs on Octung Baby, its inspiration comes from a myriad of sources. One, a World War II story about animals escaping the Berlin Zoo and roaming the streets after an Allied bombing. Yeah, I really, I really like this story. I like the surreal image of flamingos and elephants walking down the streets of a bombed-out Berlin. Um, and I can see why that intrigued Bono and helped really to rekindle his interest in absurdism and Dadaism, which he had been interested in uh, what back in the late 70s when he was doing sort of um, street performance art with members of the Lipton Village. And let's bookmark that as one of the many elements that goes into the core of the Zoo TV tour, shall we? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, speaking of uh, the Berlin Zoo, um, the song takes its name from the train station adjacent to the zoo. Um, I can't speak German, but it's Zoo Bahnhof. I think there's a longer version of, of what that's called as well, which, again, I don't speak German. Um, and this is right before the wall fell. Um, it was the busiest train station line in West Germany, through which a rapid train line called U2 ran. I'm sure that caught the band's attention. No doubt. Um, and a station where the newly free East Germans arrived to get their first look at the West. And I think it can be taken as you two calling out their own transfer, as it were, moving from a bright and idealistic past to a dark, dangerous, and even sexy future. I like what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> and those lines of the opening verse is also maybe my favorite uh, inspiration, Bono channeling his own newborn daughter Eve, pushing to get out of her mother's belly and crawl into the new world, ready to duck, ready to dive, ready to say, I'm glad to be alive. I'm ready for the push. Let's listen to that. And in the midst of these images of birth and rebirth comes this moment of futility, this image of, um, I don't know, death or maybe purgatory in the pre-chorus. Time is a train, makes the future the past, leaves you standing in the station, your face pressed against the glass. Let's listen to that, too. Yeah, for sure. That's a great part. So, you know, no matter how much you dress this album up, it's not going to be all fun and frivolity here. From the very first track, we know that this album is really going to be a heavy mother. Uh, certainly their heaviest record to date, and maybe of all the records. Now, in the last episode, we mentioned Zoo Station was one of three tracks that originated from Lady with a Spinning Head. And for a long time, it was fairly unremarkable. Until Eno did some prototype mixes that Edge said opened some creative doors to where the song could go. And one of those mixes ended up as a bonus track on the, let's be honest, underwhelming Passengers record right. uh, that Eno and U2 put out a few years later. But on a track called Bottoms, I'm going to botch this, Watcha Shitachi. <laughs> Glad you did that, not me. <laughs> exactly. Um, and we're going to take a listen to that. But Melody, I want you to take a listen and check out the cool sort of like kraut rock feel here. Something you might hear on a can or craft work record. Let's take a listen. 
then from there, as we mentioned, Flood added, you know, the industrial touches, and then Daniel Lenoir constructed the intro and mixed it. And the mix of that intro is like a performance piece in and of itself. And what an intro for what turns out to be the entire Zoo TV tour. But we'll get to that in our next part. Right. And I mean, that introduction, it's so much more muscular um, and explosive than anything that the band had done previously. No question. I mean, that first minute of Zoo Station, before Bono even opens his mouth, you yeah. two has, they've served notice. Everything you know is wrong. <laughs> right. Uh, and this is what Edge and Bono had been holding out for. Now, you mentioned Flood's industrial touches. Um, one of the many reinventions that take place on Octung Baby are Bono's vocals. Um, he said that he was unhappy with the initial takes of Zoo Station and asked Flood to add a treatment to it. Um, the resulting compressed and distorted sound gave Bono new colors, really, to play with to change his performance. And the resulting vocal captures a feeling of uh, excitement and ambivalence all at once, which I think works perfectly for this song. It reminds me of when John Lennon asked Jeff Emmerich at the beginning of the Revolver sessions for that vocal treatment on Tomorrow Never Knows, mm. if you recall. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so speaking of those early takes, we're going to be referencing in our song by song here the um, what's called the kindergarten disc that was included on the Uber Deluxe edition of Octane Baby. And on that disc were some really fascinating rough mixes of the 12 songs that make it onto Octane Baby. And Melody, I think we both agree that these date from the latter stages of the recording sessions, maybe around July 91, would you agree? Yeah, yeah I would. And it gives us a look through the peephole at the home stretch of the making of the record. Um, structurally, with a couple of uh, a couple exceptions. Most of these songs are already in place, but there's some hugely transformative production touches still to come, and not to mention some really interesting lyrics that don't make the final cut. Um, in the case of Zoo Station, the chorus is still not fleshed out, but fledged distorted drums are there, and the, so is the megaphone treatment on Bono's voice. So this captures Bono in the midst of transforming the lyrics into a proclamation for the whole record, but not quite there yet. Uh, we're going to take a listen, and you'll hear in the first four lines, they're there, um, but then they veer off. So we go from, I'm ready, I'm ready for the laughing gas, I'm ready, ready for what's next, and then it goes, I'm ready to slip, I'm ready to slide, I'm ready to accept what I once denied, I'm ready, I'm ready to wake up. So, you know, we'll take a look at that, but I think you'd agree, it's on point, but it's not exactly what he wanted to do. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, work in progress, the, absolutely. A work yeah. in progress. So yeah. let's take a quick look at that, or a quick listen to that, rather. Okay, so great opening track. Um, where are we going from here? Well, we've got even better than the real thing.
as we've been doing for the last few records, um, we're detailing the commercial performance of album singles uh, to put into perspective um, really the success of the band globally. Um, Even Better Than The Real Thing was released as the fourth of the five singles from the album on June 8th, 1992. The song Salome, which I know, Bill, is your favorite. Um, is the Not B-side. my favorite, but yes, right. Almost, <laughs> almost true. <laughs> um, the song reached number 32 on the U.S. singles chart um, and number one on the album rock charts here. Um, it also went to number 12 in the U.K. number th- and number three in Ireland and Canada. Boosted by a pretty cool and innovative video with Bono and full fly regalia flying actually <laughs> in that video uh and i might add the paul oakenfeld perfecto mix is one of the few remixes i like in fact i really like it um melody we haven't touched much on remixes you like that mix or um which? you know it's it's not so much my thing but i mean it is kind of fun Um, All right, so this song actually dates back to Rattle and Hum. Uh, It was initially recorded at the same session as the version of Desire that appears on uh, Rattle and Hum, uh, recorded at STS Studios in Dublin back in 1988, uh, initially titled The Real Thing. Which Bono thought was a dumb title for a song. Correct. Um, But when they took the multi-track to it to Germany and tried to work on it at Hansa, they just couldn't crack it. Um, Lyrically, I suppose the song is about a hyper-reality that's more real than reality. A song that exists in cribs and skies turning into night where it's safe for Icarus, you know, with the the sun won't melt our wings tonight line. But let's not over-intellectualize it. It's basically about sex, isn't it? Right. It's about asking your lover for another chance, you know, not to get to some greater truth, of course, but to get some instant gratification, like you're saying, to get laid. Wait, um, wait what you say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, well, it depends on the day, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, there's a slickness to the sexuality in the lyrics that makes you think of advertising, someone trying to sell you something. You mentioned this line, but we're free to fly the crimson skies also sounds kind of like a commercial jingle. And, you know, it's hard to believe someone who's trying to sell you something. That's funny. I actually never even thought of it. It could be uh, an airline ad. Exactly. <laughs> I actually never exactly. thought of it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So those early versions um, that I mentioned, uh, you know, they had what the band called a Rolling Stones kind of groove that you can hear on the first half of the kindergarten version. Let's take a listen. Now let's listen to the final, which has that great opening with Edge's whammy pedal, which gives it, you know, like this octave uh, shift and a kind of otherness. Let's listen to that. Mm 
Another thing they did was pair things back by getting rid of the clutter in the mix, which gives it, uh, you know, some breathing room for that great simple rhythmic groove between Adam and Larry to shine. Yeah, and you know, there's that overall sort of 70s glam-esque Mark Bolin kind of vibe to the song, which is really fun, really sexy. Yeah, and uh, you know, we talked about Larry playing to his own loops, and this is a great example. You can hear him playing to his loop maracas or tambourines on this in mysterious ways and until the end of the world, among others. Also, I love that child backing vocals they added really mm -hmm. cool yeah. and the double tracking of bono's vocals here not a harmony but an octave um which is something he employed a couple other times here and something he'd move on to and use in the future yeah you know i've often wondered about that um bono has said that he finds it difficult to tape harmonies with himself which i i find interesting um and that's why edge usually does that job and i just i don't know i mean i guess as another singer i've always wondered if it's just easier for him to match his main track by going up an octave i right. don't know i mean it could be but I, to me i think it's more about him trying to capture a or look for a persona on the verses yeah, which maybe which he seems to be hunting for all throughout this album largely to great effect so one last thing before we move on um which I thought was interesting. As you know, Coca-Cola uses the very famous slogan, it's the real thing. Yep. Um, well, Richard Branson approached the band to use this song as a part of um, sort of a one-upmanship campaign for his cola drink call, called Virgin Cola, which I don't think is around anymore, but I could no, it. it just took off. It was so huge. <laughs> well, anyway, fortunately, the band turned him down on this. Um, yeah. But I do think we both agree this is a great song. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what do we have next? Well, the next step is the song One. Is it getting better? Or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you? All right, as we covered in part one, and as so many others have covered in books and magazines and documentaries, the writing of one restored faith within the band as songwriters and even served to mend the friendships that had gotten taken for granted. Yeah, and just to quickly recap, um, the band were at their lowest point while recording in Berlin. All of them were considering if they even had a future as a band when Edge experimenting with an alternate bridge to an early version of Mysterious Ways, played a chord progression that had something special about it. Uh, the band started jamming, and within 15 minutes, the majority of the song One had been written. Yeah, and when the record finally comes out, One is Octoon Baby's first moment of pause, slotted into the third spot after the jarring opening salvo of Zoo Station and the playful... Uh, irony of even better than the real thing 
And while one does sound like, you know, it might be able to fit somewhere on the Joshua Tree, you'd never hear these kinds of lyrics on that record or anything up to this point. Um, here, the words are actually unromantic and speak to a kind of skepticism about relationships themselves and this idea that unity is a dream left unfulfilled. Right. Uh, the lyrics, they really get to the heart of the complicated nature of interpersonal relationships. Um, layered among the pain and the blame is also this impulse towards, as you said, unity, a movement towards love. Um, you have the lines, one love, one blood, one life, you've got to do what you should, one life with each other, sisters, brothers, one life, but we're not the same, we get to carry each other, carry each other. Let's listen to that. Uh, the key line, of course, is we get to carry each other, which introduces grace to the song. And that wording of get to instead of got to, so often used in soul and rock and roll, is essential, as it suggests that it is a privilege to help one another, not an obligation. Bono has said, and I quote, I'm still disappointed when people hear the chorus line as got to rather than we get to carry each other. Because like it or not, the only way out of here is if I give you a leg up the wall and you pull me after you. Yeah. Um, uh, there are a lot of interpretations on these lyrics. Um, the most common, of course, is that it, it's a conversation between lovers who are on the verge of breaking apart. Um, another interpretation of the song um, was that it's about the band, you know, during their time at Hansa Studios. Right. And then another, later from 2005, when Bono said, it's a father and son story. I tried to write about someone I knew who was coming out and was afraid to tell his father. It's a religious father and son. Nice try, but that's another bit of Bono engaging in retroactive history telling. So I say, bollocks. Yeah, I agree with you. It seems like a bit of a stretch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know... Uh, but I have to say, of all the interpretations of the song, the one that I think is really um, interesting is that it's a wedding song. Um, this is not a song that should be played at your wedding, um, no. which apparently many people have done. It's a song about breaking up. Absolutely. But then people still think Born in the USA is a jingoistic anthem. That is true. <laughs> um, in any case, interestingly, when Brian Eno listened to the tapes from the Berlin session, he liked all of the songs except for one he felt that it was too straightforward for what the band were trying to achieve with this record and that it needed to be deconstructed he suggested that the band remove the acoustic guitar initially played on the song to eliminate the quote-unquote too beautiful feeling yeah and Eno was right um, we're going to take a listen to the intro on the kindergarten version, and you'll hear how the acoustic guitar casts the song in, I mean, really a different light. Let's listen. Is it getting better? Or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you? 
Now let's listen to the intro to the final version. Gone is the acoustic guitar, and it's replaced by, you know, kind of like a softer, understated, groovy electric riff that gives way then to that kind of hammering guitar after the drums come in. And then under it is that faint crying guitar part, which adds a little tension. So I think Eno deserves a lot of credit for giving one a kind of sonic cohesion with the rest of Octane Baby. Let's listen to that intro from the final version. One life when it's one me in the night one love we get to share it leaves you baby if you don't care Then the last thing I'd add is it wasn't until the very last night of the album's recording sessions, uh, after the mix was completed, no less, when Edge came up with that great guitar part you hear that comes in with those lines you just quoted with uh, one love, one blood. And that gives the home stretch of that song a little liftoff. Uh, anyway, Edge uh, played the song, uh, played that part once, and then they finished the mix and then sent it off to be mastered, or so the story goes. Or so the story goes. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just listen to that uh, guitar part as it comes in. song was released as the third single from the album on February 24th, 1992, with Lady with the Spinning Head as its B-side. Um, proceeds from the single sales were donated to various AIDS research organizations, which I think is very cool. The song charted at number 10 on the U.S. singles charts and number one on the album Rock Song charts. It also reached number seven in the U.K. and number one in Canada and Ireland. But, I mean, chart position notwithstanding this song has gone on to be called one of the greatest songs of all time on various polls um it's tenderness and emotional complexity both musically and lyrically in my opinion are at the zenith of the band's output so where are we going to next bill oh just a little ditty about jesus and judas uh called until the end of the world Yes, in an album steeped in tales of temptation and betrayal, here's a song about the most notorious betrayal in all the ages between Judas and Jesus. Yes. Um, musically, this song started life as a guitar riff Bono came up with called Fat Boy during the pre-Octung uh, Baby demo sessions at STS Studios. The riff didn't really go anywhere, um, that is, until Vim Vendors approached the band for a song for his upcoming film called Until the End of the World, and Edge resurrected the riff um, and created a backing track with Adam, um, which the band really loved. 
Once the song was completed, the band told vendors he could use the song in his film, but that they were also stealing his title and putting the song on the record. Yeah, I mean, Bono would have you believe that it was an epic coincidence that at the very moment he was sketching out a song from the perspective of Judas, the Irish poet Brendan Kennelly was writing Book of Judas, a series of poems about the betrayal of Christ. But okay, Bono, whatever you say. <laughs> it's okay to laugh, Melody. It's a real neat slapper of a tune. <laughs> oh, I had to laugh there because I had to like... I was laughing. Yeah, I know, I know. You know what I'm doing, so I'm going to do it again. Now. All yeah. right. Uh, the, the lyrics cover scenes from Judas' betrayal of Christ, um, the Last Supper, the betrayal of Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, all for 30 pieces of silver. Yeah, and this helps flesh out one of the central themes of Octune Baby, uh, how temptation and betrayal is anything that will keep you from your destiny. Yeah, and following the story of Judas, his destiny is remorse and suicide. Yeah, and Melody, even I uh, recognize the quoting of Matthew in the last line of the song, which so movingly captures Judas's eternal regret as he recalls Jesus' vow ringing in his ears that he'd be with him always, even until the end of the world. Uh, let's listen to that verse, one of my favorites in all of the YouTube canon. Yeah, that stanza, it always gets me. Um, I always see it as a reminder that love can still exist, regardless of all the things we do to screw it and ourselves up. Yeah, um, Bono said, and I quote, um, I started to write about the hypocrisy of my own heart and the way I saw relationships around me. And to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, how each man did kill the thing he loved. And until the end of the world was a kind of vision. It was ecstatic in a religious way, a song about temptation. No question about that. <laughs> yeah. And giving into temptation, right? In this case. Yes. And the other thing that's really cool is Bono sings this song, like the fly, in a conversational style, which I think adds an extra layer of intimacy, don't you? I do. And and I think when you have lyrics that are this good you might want to have them be understood. Yeah. <laughs> and this type of almost a, um, a Sinatra-esque crooning technique works really well for that. Oh, definitely. Now, Melody, I wanted to ask your opinion about the suggestion. There's some, I don't know, some homoeroticism in the lyrics. You're feeling on that? I mean, if you want to see that in the lyrics, there are arguments for it, definitely. Um, for me, for me, I think that Bono added sexual imagery to the lyrics so that it would work on multiple levels. Yeah. Um, you know, that this could be a simpler story of a lover's betrayal. And in that case, I don't know. I mean, the genders of the characters don't really matter. You know, what do, what do you think? Uh, I completely agree. And, you know, even I, who 
I am very familiar with the scenes in the Bible from which this comes, but mm -hmm. I don't think it's essential that you do know. And we yeah. talked about this many, many times over the course, going back to Gloria. Um, right. and, and, and there are instances in the U2 canon that they work better than others. This is another one where the, the specifics are very on point and obvious, but they don't have to be. All right. So I mentioned earlier that so many of these songs take on multiple meanings. And with this song and on Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses and So Cruel, Ultraviolet, Love is Blindness, these are songs that explore betrayal in different ways with no shortage of examples of the lure of sexual powers. Um, speaking of, how about Adam's incredibly sexy bass groove? Oh, man, I really, really love the music on this one. Um, I mean, I agree with you about Adam's line and Edge's work. It's amazing. That solo, I think it's next level. Um, and that whole rousing outro of the song. I mean, it's everything that U2 does best as a band, which I think is why the song is so amazing live. No question. Um, one of the great enduring uh yeah. live tracks yeah um i also wanted to mention there's a great piece of songwriting craft here the way the recurring rift is the resolution chord of e um but when the verses start it drops down to b minor which is delightfully unexpected mm -hmm. um you know just sort of like downshifts yeah. dun, 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 dun. i haven't seen you in quite a while that's a really nice um little piece of songwriting craft um this song is definitely in the run for track of the record for me yeah yeah, for me too. Okay, where are we going next? All right, so it's going to be uh, Who's Going to Ride Your Wild Horses? So this song was the fifth and final single from Octung Baby, released on November 23rd, 1992, just over a year after the album was released. Um, the B-sides were the band's covers of The Stones' Painted Black and CCR's Fortunate Son, the latter um, of which included Maria McKee on backing vocals. Uh, the song peaked at number 35 on the U.S. singles charts and number two on the rock album songs charts. In the U.K., the song went to number 14. It was not number four uh, in Ireland and peaked at number five in Canada. Okay. Um, all right. So I think what's interesting is it's not until here on the fifth song of the record before Bono gives you, you know, kind of a full-throated chorus um, he's been disguised behind megaphones and double tracking and, you know, singing in that conversational style we were talking about. Um, but it did take a lot of trial and error to get to this final version, both musically and particularly lyrically, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Um, it, and also, too, I mean, similar to Hawk Moon 269 on Rattle and Hum, this song was repeatedly mixed and remixed, and the band weren't really happy um, with the version that ends up on the record. Yeah. Um, the, the song was originally called Morning Child, Don't Turn Around, among other titles. And it was also originally demoed at STS in Dublin and was one of the many songs the band banged away at endlessly at Hansa without success. 
Uh, in any case, no matter how many rewrites they did of it, lyrically, it seems to have always been about some sort of brief and torrid affair that's come to an end. Um, whereas songs like One and So Cruel and Love is Blindness um, speak to the pain afflicted during lengthy relationships. Mm. Uh, but I wanted to point out, again, going to the kindergarten version, the lyrics are a lot more personal, painful, revealing, maybe a little too revealing in the end. Um, like the first verse goes, your innocence, I'm experienced, the windows of my room all look over you. Now the night has turned a different kind of blue. The wind turn as you walk away black. Was I asking you to stay? On and on and on. Um, so let's take a listen to the first part of that kindergarten version. Your innocence, Now, Bono would ultimately land on territory a little less revealing and self-destructive, but still a fascinating tale nonetheless. Well, I think that the the, the final lyrics, um, you know, I mean, obviously they're more well-crafted, although from what Bono has said, he still wasn't entirely happy with them. Um, but I think that the change in perspective or the switched roles makes the object of the story much more interesting. I mean, the, the lover becomes the more chaotic character. For example, in the kindergarten version, the lyrics are, uh, you cry, I'd kill for you. I lied, you made it true. You cry, I'd kill for you. I lied, you made it final version it's well you stole it because i needed the cash and you killed it because i wanted revenge well you lied to me because i asked you to much more interesting well you stole it because i needed the cash and you killed it because i wanted revenge well you lied to me because i asked you to This feels like the first time Bono's written, you know, a lyric that piques some curiosity and maybe concern even about his personal life. I mean, obviously he could be channeling others, um, but it makes you wonder um, because certainly the lyrics have never been so personal. You know, on previous records, his lyrics were, you know, they'd be these big grandiose statements. And when he touch on self-doubt or vulnerability, often it would be veiled in scripture, something like, uh, you know, drowning man or streets. Great lyrics, but often it came off a little high-handed or like he was trying to write modern hymns or psalms like his favorite King David. Um, I mean, who knows? But this sure sounds like a song about infidelity. Coincidence, Bono and Ali had just crossed over the seven years of marriage threshold, just asking. Melody, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't obviously I don't know about that, but, uh, you no, know. No, nor do I. Right, right, right. I mean, I always think this song, um, certainly it's a breakup song. It, the final 
lyrics. It's a breakup song with infidelity at the core. You know, yeah. you've got the lines, well, you lied to me because I asked you to, baby, can we still be friends? Mm-hmm. Um, and it is public knowledge. Bono's talked about certainly um, the breakup of Edge's relationship um, and his close friend, um, um, the artist and former Lipton Village member Googie has also spoken about some of these songs being about the ending of his relationship. Um, and since both of those relationships were longstanding, I mean, I, really they had started when, you know, all these people were were kids really. And you two are said to be such a very close knit community. I'm sure that both of those breakups affected everyone in that community very deeply. Also, I wanted to take a second and acknowledge what an utterly brilliant bridge both this song and the next one, So Cruel, has among the best they ever recorded. Just sublime. Um, let's take a listen to that. And it should be noted, the mix was done by Steve Lillywhite, who said he worked on it for a month, but no one seems to have been fully satisfied with it, which explains why they stripped it all back for the mix for the single and the video, which is known as the Temple Bar mix. Which I think is a far, far better version than the one on the album. Well, it translates a little easier, I guess is what I'd say. I'm not sure I like it better, but um, you can understand why they did that. Um, yeah, so I, I yeah. yeah, I mean, I just think that the album version, particularly the start, it's it's buried. The song to me sounds buried by um, the effects that they use, the guitar. I just think the cleaner version, I, I don't know. It serves, in my opinion, anyway, it serves the song better. Well, it's it's a song that obviously <laughs> probably is the hardest one they that they were trying to bring home. Uh, I I I think it was just an attempt to find sonic cohesion but ultimately yes it buried the song itself Mm. so maybe they were trying to just take a song that was never meant to be on octoon baby um yeah perhaps and 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 so ultimately a year later they remix it very stripped back for the video and the single and uh, let's take a listen to that the temple bar version sounds good you're dangerous Cause you're honest You're dangerous You don't know what you want Well you left my heart Empty as a vacant lot For Okay Bill, so where are we going from here? Next up it's So Cruel Uh, this is one of my favorites of the record. Yeah, mine as well. Uh, Melody, you mentioned earlier about the relationships that were ending in the YouTube community. And Bono is clearly drawing on the experience of those 
close to him. He said Edge's marriage falling apart was in there, but that was only part of it. There were lots of other things going on internally within the band and outside it in their community. Um, this idea of people desperately trying to hold on to each other, how unprepared for it people are, and the deals they make. Yeah, it's so cruel for me. It's it's really an interesting take on a torch song um, where the unrequited love is stained by infidelity and jealousy and blame and anger. Um, like the the woman in mysterious ways, uh, the subject of this song is painted as um, really an unattainable object. You know, she's placed on the proverbial pedestal where she has the power to and does torture, um, but remains the focus of unquenchable sexual desire. You know, you've got those lyrics starting with her skin is pale like God's only dove. Let's go ahead and listen to that. Her skin is pale like God's only dove Screams like an angel for your love When she makes you watch her from above And you need her um, Hot press writer and friend of Bono, Neil Stokes, described it as the desolate complaint of a lover who has been spurned, but who remains in love with his tormentor. Um, I disappeared in you. You disappeared from me. I gave you everything you ever wanted. It wasn't what you wanted uh, as an example. Um, there's so many great lines in this song, honestly. Um, but for the sheer combination of words capturing the anguish of the song, and more importantly, the delivery itself, which is what I always look for, um, for me, that moment of the song is the verse, her heart is racing, you can't keep up, the night is bleeding like a cut, and then the way Bonna delivers between the horses of love and lust, we are trampled underfoot. Great line, great I mean, line. The, that one is just a killer. Um, yeah, let's yeah. listen to that. It should be said that the musical beginning of the song, um, like Unto the End of the World, began in a session at Dogtown um, with a strummed acoustic guitar part played by Bono, accompanied by some vocals, um, with the rest of the band, you know, then joining in with Edge on acoustic guitar, Adam on acoustic bass, and Larry on the Bodron. Um, this jam resulted in a solidly traditional song structure. Um, one that was discussed as perhaps being too straightforward for the album. Um, the acoustic version was fleshed out with a simple drum track, a five-note piano loop and violin and viola played by Duchess Neil Catchpole. Um, they they got the Duchess, did they? They did. They got the Duchess. Oh, quite a half there. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I mean, but I think that part, it adds a romantic, but not sentimental feel. Yeah. Um, you know, Bono's melody line is similarly simple. If To me, it feels very free flowing and almost liquid in its delivery. Yes. Um, also wanted to mention and this is coming from someone who's nerded out often listening to each verse and sort of a molecular level. Mm -hmm. each, each verse, if you listen, has its own character. 
each one feels like it has its own little some special quality, whether it be when Edge comes in after the first chorus with that tremolo mm -hmm. or when the bass comes in, which we'll talk to in a second. I mean, each one has its special quality. And I, I think I tried to count. Edge has so many guitar parts and they're just they they don't um clutter they come in one by one and then disappear it's very cool mm -hmm. um also wanted to mention as i said about the bass it was flood who said he took adam's bass and repositioned it so it landed differently on the beat which apparently um created kind of an otherness to the groove and transformed the song which you know this is another example of the production team doing what might be called in the film industry some post-production magic yeah and you know <laughs> But as you and I were discussing the other day, the repositioning of the baseline might have helped to you know, mitigate the straightforward nature of the song, but it doesn't change the fact that, man, that is a really great baseline, just on its own. Listen, all hail Adam. This is his best work to date. It's not even close. Yeah. He's so cool and so groovy. Um, and we'll get to that a little bit more. Um, yeah. And I also wanted to mention again, as I said on Wild Horses, that on that and the bridge on So Cruel, these bridges are so stunning. The chord change that comes at the start of the bridge on this song is so unexpected, and I just love how it immediately transports you somewhere else. Let's listen to that on the uh, She Wears My Love Like a See-Through Dress. She wears my love like a see-through dress Her lips I wanted to also mention, back to the kindergarten version, uh, the music and arrangement, it's all there pretty much. But Bono is captured deep in his process, once again, searching for the voice and the story he wants to tell. And we're going to take a listen to some fascinating alternate lyrics that don't make the final mix, including, Heard you made a breakthrough with your best friend, said he'd love you till the party's end. I'm so happy. I could nearly attend, but I'm busy. Nothing's changed. Not extraordinary, but you can tell he's searching for something that you'd love to know where it really comes from <laughs> you know because it's 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 he's digging down there um but anyway let's um let's listen to the kindergarten version had you made a breakthrough with your best friend said he'd love you till the party's end i'm so happy i could nearly I think what's so interesting about having the kindergarten version of these songs is you really get a peek inside the creative evolution, um, which is really something that we don't get a whole lot from you two. Never. Yeah. Yeah. Never. <laughs> um, and and also specifically with these lyrics, I think that, you know, the infidelity that sort of underpins the final lyrics, they're much more obvious, I think, in, mm -hmm. in the rough lyrics. Mm -hmm. So the whole the whole thing is kind of just fascinating. Yes. And the last thing I'd say is if you've never heard the one final full band run through of the song during the rehearsals for the outside broadcast leg of the Zoo TV tour from uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, I implore you to pause this podcast 
and go to YouTube and listen to it. It is incredible, especially Edge's guitar, which you only hear a tiny hint on the kindergarten version, but is so unbelievable. Sounds like a viola. Um, yeah, yeah, I hadn't actually yeah. heard that, Bill. Um, yeah. And then you sent it to me. And it's, yeah, I agree. It's, it's yeah. cool. It's amazing. Um, I only wish they'd included it in the set list back then yeah, yeah. Um, as a full band. But as we record this, I will say, um, we hear, uh, they're coming up on the sphere here. I hear they're rehearsing it maybe. Yeah. So, spoiler alert, um, uh, that would be Should worth be cool. it for me to go to that show. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've been... I've been dubious about it, but that would be very cool. All right. Well, uh, shall, shall we move on? Let's move on. Let's talk about the fly. As we mentioned previously, um, The Fly is the album's first single, which was released on October 21st, 1991. Uh, the B-side um, was Alex Descends Into Hell for a Bottle of Milk, Karova, which is super cool, um, yep. uh, which Bono had, and Edge had written for the Royal Shakespeare Company's production of A Clockwork Orange. The song only reached number 61 on the U.S. singles charts, but it was hugely popular um, here in the States on our alternative rock stations. It did reach number one on the U.K. charts, as well as in Ireland, Australia and New Zealand, and also a bunch of other European countries where you two typically don't reach number one. Um, you know, maybe because of the song's danceability. I don't know. Melody, you mentioned in the first part of our episode that wardrobe man Fenton Fitzgerald had found the black wraparound sunglasses, and Bono said he put them on at Dogtown when they'd hit a problem and make, you know, everyone laugh by channeling this kind of character, you know, who, uh, you know, these self-appointed experts on the politics of love and bullshit philosophies. Edge said these were characters in Dublin, you know, these barstool philosophers with all these great theories and notions on the edge of madness and genius. Yeah, I've always I've always sort of related this to, you know, sort of like your drunk uncle that tells you everything that's wrong with the world and all the ways you can fix it over Christmas dinner. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that guy that's sometimes brilliant, but always has really sauced logic. Yeah. But anyway, um, Bono said that this character gave him much needed breathing room from himself. Yeah, no question. Uh, Writing this song was, I would say, the origin story to Bono liberating himself for the future. He said, um, I started to realize that rather cracked character could say things that I couldn't because I was getting hemmed in as Bono, earnest young man. It was the Shakespearean idea of the fool that I had played with in my teenage years, which you had referenced earlier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, The Fly is not my favorite song on Octune Baby, but I do love the juxtaposition of the verses that throw, you know, all this high energy sonic barrage at you. And then you get to this angelic chorus. Yeah. And once again, we have such a driving groovy bass part from Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, I really do like those aggressive guitar parts from Edge, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and his solo is super cool. It is super cool. 
Um, then there's Bono's so-called fat lady voice, which I just mentioned on the chorus, which he said was kind of more like a Mick Jagger meets Prince campy falsetto. Um, let's listen to the chorus. What the heck? Bono has said that chorus is saying, scale this rock face at your peril. Lots have tried before you and have been left on the flypaper. Bono has said he had been writing single line aphorisms or truisms and that with the fly had found a character that could sing them all. However, I think where he really got the idea mm. was from American artist Jenny Holzer, um, who displayed truisms in and around New York City in the late 1970s. Um, these truisms were displayed in low tech ways, like being painted on the side of buildings to much larger digital displays in Times Square, which look eerily similar to what ended up on screens during Zoo TV. But anyway, um, she was using these modern cliches to subvert expected thought. Examples of her works were lines like abuse of power comes as no surprise murder has its sexual side, protect me from what I want. Um, you know, and all of these sound a lot like alternate lines in the lyrics to The Fly, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And all of this added up to something that initially was a little shocking to longtime U2 fans, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Adam said, at that time, it was impossible to know whether YouTube fans would follow Bono down this particular path. So that was a real leap of faith. And it's true. The Fly, both the song and the video, where everyone got a first glimpse of Bono in character with the shades and the slick black uh, hair, the shiny black leather pants and jacket. All of this was a little jarring for the fans who were drawn to Bono's heart-on-the-sleeve idealism. And there was a story of a fan that had confronted Bono at the beginning of the Zoo TV tour and pointed at his sunglasses and shiny pants and asked, what's happened to you? Have you lost your faith? And Bono says to go read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, which are essentially letters from a senior devil to an apprentice devil to tempt the humans of Earth. Right. And, this, and this goes to this idea that if you want to understand the devil, study his work. So maybe outwardly it appears... Bono is leaving his faith, but he's finding a new way to test it or challenge it. Right. And, you know, in some ways, it's maybe not so different from I still haven't found what I'm looking for in that sense. Yeah. And using the character of the fly to put this across so liberating, you know, it's kind of brilliant. Agreed. All right. So I think that we're good on the fly. I think so, too. Time so to where move are we on. going to now? Yeah. Mysterious ways. Okay. We've talked about the infantile stages of this tune when it was an improvised demo called Sick Puppy, at which point the band only liked Adam's bass line. 
Bono said it was a baseline in search of a song. <laughs> hey, yeah, and I mean, <laughs> and after you've listened to this song, I mean, you can really understand why they worked so hard to preserve it. It's it's killer. It's a groovy line. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and as we've also covered in the last episode, it's one that emerges from the frustration of not being able to make sick puppy work. Um, and then after they got one to work, they regained some faith and confidence. And when they went back to Mysterious Ways, it started to finally come around, but not easily, was it? No, I mean, <laughs> it took a while for the song to gel. I yeah. mean, while still in Hansa, Bono and Daniel Lanois had a huge fight over the direction of the song, which um, apparently lasted hours. According to longtime crew member Joe Hurley, it was a nasty, down and dirty fight. And reminiscing about that moment later, Bono said um, that it's actually one of the things that he most cherishes about Lanois, that he, quote, cares about the record he's making as much and more than any band or artist he's working with, unquote. Certainly there were several stories like that with Danny and uh, Bob Dylan mm -hmm. on both Oh Mercy mm -hmm. and Time Out of Mind. Mm -hmm. um, but then Edge started experimenting with the funk wah setting on a Korg A3 guitar effects unit. Uh, and came up with that great intro that sounds like a funky jackhammer. Um, and then Larry recorded a drum track introducing a much groovier beat, you know, than what they were kind of working with with the drum machine, which demonstrated the differences between a drum machine and a real drummer, kind of brilliant. And yeah. I think that helped bring Larry back into the fold a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And and just real quickly, talking about chart position on this song, um, it was released as the second single off the album. Um, the release date was uh, December 2nd in the UK and December 3rd in the States of 1991. It reached number nine in the US singles charts and number one on the rock album song charts in the UK. It went to number 13 and it also went to number one in Ireland. Right. Um. Now, lyrically, Melody, you have a far better attuned antenna when it comes to interpreting spiritual meaning from you two songs. I don't know, Bill. Um, you're on it without, you know, bringing up uh, the book of Matthew and the screw tape letters in this episode, of which I am very proud, I must say. I'm not just a heathen. I, <laughs> I have my moments. <laughs> um, I wanted to see what your take is, um, because I think this song can be read in a lot of different ways. Now, maybe it's just a sexy groove song about worshiping the sexual powers of a woman, um, and that's fine, <laughs> but it could be something more. So, um, Melody, is it possible Johnny is John the Baptist with the a dive in the rain being a reference to baptism? Okay, go on with that interpretation. I mean, we do know Bono was reading a lot of Oscar Wilde during this period, so is it Again, is it possible he's channeling the portrayal of John the Baptist from Oscar Wilde's play, Salome, whose dance, of course, leads to the death of John the Baptist in Mark? I mean, I get it. John could be just an everyman, just one of us, as it were. I get it. Bono does love to send out mixed messages about his lyrics, and God knows there's plenty of that on this record. And he said, it's a song about a man who's been without love or knows nothing about love. So I get it. Again, it could be just that. But then we get to the lines, to touch is to heal, to hurt is to steal. If you want to kiss the sky, better learn how to kneel on your knees, boy. I mean, some say this is another allusion to oral sex, but it could be, could be, kissing the sky by kneeling, you know, having to learn humility before God, 
if you wish to ascend to God's grace. Am I way off? Um, I mean, I think that's an interesting interpretation, uh, you know, and, and there is that overlay of the image of prostrating yourself to a higher force. But I have to say, really, what I see here is this is more of a zealous lover uh, prostrating himself before the woman um, that he has exalted to unattainable heights. That That's how I see it. But please, I think you have more to this interpretation well, of which I'd like to hear. But again, like, let's remember, it's like, you know, the the mind of a writer, especially someone like Bono, who's, you know, he's he's so historically plugged into, you know, your Marvin Gaye's, your Patti Smith's, your Pete Townsend, who veer off into sexuality, you know, intersecting with 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 the spiritual side. Um, so I, I don't think it's a stretch to think it could be subconsciously at work, because then we get to. She's the wave. She turns the tide. She sees the man inside the child. Um, I mean, the moon changes tides, right? And I think it's a woman as a spirit here. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be, Um, you know, and and yes, I mean, as we've discussed, there is that interplay between the spiritual and the sexual on this album, for sure. Um, You know, and, and my interpretation here is that this is a depiction of the mystical powers of woman, or at least this woman, um, that she has, that she can see within her lover, um, that is unseeable to others. You know, I mean, for me though, if I had to guess, um, I would say that she is probably Bono's wife. Um, probably, but then let me take it even one step further at the end of the song, both here and in so many improvised vamps at the end of live versions, you hear Bono go off. She moves with it. She moves with it. She moves in the mysterious ways. She moves with it. I mean, this could be the Holy Spirit being not just a person instead of a force, but the spirit as female. Well, you know, in Bono's memoir, um, he says of this song that its lyrical genesis came from an idea that the gender of God is not clear um, in the original biblical Hebrew and that quote, one of the names of God El Shaddai means the breasted one yeah. unquote. Um, although I do think that's has been debated among right. scholars. Um, and then of course there's the whole, you know, God works in mysterious ways, cliche that's certainly being borrowed. Yeah. Um, and as far as the moon symbol, I agree with you. That's been associated with female energy and divinity, you know, forever um so yeah i mean i do think that there's a spiritual overlay in the lyrics i don't know i mean when i hear it i maybe i'm a cretin i don't know but when i hear the song i think it's pretty much about sex and and there's that line she's slippy you're sliding down she'll be there when you hit the ground But I've also got to say this lyric, it's really next level when it comes to putting women on a pedestal, um, which Bono is, and he he certainly says this himself, he's want to do. Um, and I mean, you know, this godlike creature is mostly a benevolent force, it seems, but she's still not quite human, which I mean, really, if we're talking about relationships is kind of a problem. <laughs> well, 
I guess at this point, Melody, we can ring the bell, lit class is adjourned, (laughs) (laughs) and we can move on to the next track. Who knows what the truth is, but um, it's it's a groovy freaking song. It is. We can agree there. You know, it, you know, it, as Pete Townsend said, rock and roll may not save the world, but can help you dance all of your problems. So we'll just leave it at that. Um, all right. So where are we right. going now? Bill? Well, it's something a little lighter, wouldn't you say? I would say. All right. Trying to throw your arms around the world. So after all the confessions and darkness on this album, um, this song is a much needed breather. Yeah, a a tongue-in-cheek song about stumbling home drunk after a night out on the town. Right, and and that first verse, I think it's one of the best depictions of trying to get home when you're three sheets to the wind anywhere. (laughs) You know, starting with the line, six o'clock in the morning, you're the last to hear the warning. Let's listen to that. Sure. Six o'clock in the morning, you're the last to hear the warning. You've been trying to throw your arms around the world. You've been falling off the sidewalk. You live smooth, but you can't talk. Trying to throw your arms around the world. On the liner notes, um, it's dedicated to the Flaming Colossus nightclub here in Los Angeles where the band enjoyed a little frivolity while they were holed up in L.A., finishing off Rylan and Hum, which really means mostly Bono while Edge did all the work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, I mean, even here, um, amidst what's really probably the lightest moment on the album, I think you can find a more serious contemplation, which I interpret to be about fame and success and the unreality that comes with it. I'm referring to the lines, um, how far are you going to go before you lose your way back home? You've been trying to throw your arms around the world. And then, of course, there's that nod to surrealism in the line about Dolly, which kind of works with that theory. So we can take a listen to that if you'd like. Sure. Let's listen. With a supermarket challenge He was trying to throw his arms Around the girl It took an open top needle Through the eye of the needle He was trying to throw his arms Around the world I didn't know until recently The Dadaist line A woman needs a man Like the fish needs a bicycle Is a quotation from Australian writer And filmmaker Irina Dunn didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I thought that Gloria Steinem had said that. Um, of course, she was quoting Dunn. Um, I mean, it's kind of interesting what you learn when you're researching a YouTube podcast. Absolutely. Um, I'm also, you know, going to, again, reference the kindergarten version. Most of the lyrics and the melody is all there on that one, but they end up ditching the big strummy guitars and the big sing-along vocals with the background vocals on there as well from Sounds Like Lenoir and Eno and Edge. You've been falling off the sidewalk Your lips move but you can't talk You've been trying to throw your arms around the world I'm gonna run to you, run to you, run to you Oh my Yeah. 
Um, but instead, they put some heavy treatment on the drums and Edge adds some super cool atmospherics. I also really love the version they played on the Zoo TV tour with that great added bit where Bono adds that, won't you lift me up, lift me up, lava, woo-hoo. Um, that's really cool. Um, this is definitely one of my favorite songs on the record. Definitely gives some wonderful balance to the darkness. Great song. Yeah, I love it too. I love it yeah. too. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're good there. So something light back to back to something pretty heavy. What do you got? Yeah, we're going to talk about ultraviolet. As we covered earlier, Ultraviolet, Light My Way, was one of three songs that came out of the uh, Cell Division, as Edge calls it, that they did on Lady with a Spinning Head. Ultraviolet is the first of three songs, along with Acrobat and Love is Blindness, that conclude Octung Baby, which all explore how couples face mm, the task of reconciling the suffering they've imposed on each other. And for this song, this seems to be about how a relationship threatens some sort of personal or spiritual crises, coupled with a sense of, I would say, unease over obligations. This song has my favorite set of lines on the record. Again, not because it's brilliant poetry, but just because sometimes it's not what the line is, but how it's delivered. And I love the intimacy and desperation of Bono's voice here on Feel Like Trash, Make Me Feel Clean. I'm in the black, can't see or be seen. All right, down. Feel like trash, you make me feel clean. I'm in the black, can't see or be seen. Baby, 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 light my way. All right, now. Baby, baby, baby. You know, I, I, I agree that the lyrics in the song are incredible they're great um it's such a dark meditation on love and desperation uh, but i have to say this is actually uh, my least favorite song on the album what are you talking about <laughs> seriously yeah this seriously. is your least least it is favorite. this is it this is my least favorite song um you know typically i like songs that present a contrast between the story and the lyrics and the feel of the music and this song certainly has that but for me the problem boils down to two things. First, I don't think the music is as interesting as the rest of the stuff on Octang Baby. In my opinion, in my opinion, it's the only time that U2 sound like they're trying to play a U2 song, an older U2 song. Um, and the other thing I don't like and find distracting, actually, is that the melody line sounds like it's uh, in the wrong key for Bono's voice. And to my ear, he sounds strained at both the top and bottom ends uh well where i mean the first few <laughs> choruses are sung down low and very controlled or i'm not sure do you mean at the end where he goes higher i'm not i don't get it 
Yeah, I do mean, I do mean that at the end where he goes higher. Um, but also like in the first verse, you know, following the synthesizer drone opening, yeah. he can hit the notes, um, but they don't sound, I don't know, they don't sound comfortable to me. And I mean, as a singer, sometimes even when you can hit a note, it may not be in a great spot for yeah. your voice. And consequently, the voice doesn't sound confident. Um, I, you know, that's always what I hear when I'm listening to the song. Well, I know what you're talking about being a singer and it does sometimes it doesn't matter if you're in the right quote unquote key, mm -hmm. but it doesn't work for you. I, I get that. But I mean, I think there's a big difference between like two art speed is one, you know, where yeah, it makes up for in passion, but it's in a completely the wrong key and he's practically screeching. I mean, there's nothing close yeah, to that It's too high here. for him in that song. No, that's true. That's true. And I, I do think in the high ends, it, it feels uncomfortable, but also low. It just doesn't feel like if they had pitched it down, it probably would have even been better. I just, I it doesn't sound quite comfortable to me. I don't, I'm distracted by the delivery. Hmm. See, that's, so. that's interesting. We usually agree so on point on that, kind of thing yeah. uh i think this is a great vocal and in fact it's one of the few songs where bono allows himself to stretch out and I'm, now i'm talking about the end uh mm -hmm. where he where he gives you some desperation where he you know that he's dialed down that very intentionally so on so much of this record that to me it feels special here i mean for me at least hmm. agree to disagree on this one yeah I think. totally you know but i mean but getting back to the lyrics um you know, the opening verse is, I think, the darkest place on this record. And to me, it sounds like someone at the end of the rope and maybe a contemplation of suicide. Um, you know, I'm talking of sometimes I feel like I don't know. Sometimes I feel like checking out. Um, anyway, we can take a listen to that. Sure. Actually, that intro that you quoted mm -hmm. was grafted from the ending of the song when the, where they initially had it as heard on the kindergarten version. And it's so strange to hear it there, of course. Um, and it's a good thing they did move it because it was it, it did not sound right there. And whereas it really does work as an intro. Um, why don't we take a listen to that, how it um, how the kindergarten version has that intro and the outro. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's take a listen. up on what you mentioned earlier um the exploration of how couples reconcile their self-imposed suffering i think bono does a very interesting thing in the verses vacillating between this present terrible 
thing or condition that's happening, um, which I've interpreted as infidelity, and this before time where the lover is a source of transcendence and comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but again, like with a lot of other songs, I mean, this transcendent is also implying a spiritual element, right? Mm-hmm, definitely. And, you know, I this could be Bono talking to Allie, or it could be just using the light as a central metaphor. I mean, ultraviolet light, of course, is not visible to the naked eye. So I see this as being used here to describe possibly a divine force that can't be seen or that is knowable. Um, what do you think? I mean, I think that both ideas are being pursued here. Um, the yeah. idea that the comfort that you used to find from God and or your lover is gone. Um, you know, and I mean, as we've we've been talking about that interplay, the the, yeah. the spiritual, the sexual happens a lot on this record. No doubt. Um, in any case, it feels like the singer is drowning um, and desperate to hold hands in the darkness, I get, um, to have someone else point the way. Um, also that line, in Raymond Carver's 1980s poem, Suspenders, about the quiet that comes into the house where no one can sleep, was subconsciously (coughs) recycled by Bono into the lyric. Well, I mean, he steals the good stuff, right? (laughs) Mm, Right. Okay. (laughs) Let's keep it moving. Where are we going now? Let's talk about Acrobat. I will confess, Acrobat is not my favorite song on Octune Baby. Uh, and by that, I mean it's not an enjoyable listening experience. It's fraught with tension without release. That said, it does musically replicate the kind of mental damage taking place in a crumbling relationship where it feels like the walls are closing in. Um, yeah. But I've never loved the song. Yeah, I suspect I, I do like the song more than you do. Um I find it interesting musically, Um, you know, and again, got to give Adam props. (laughs) I particularly like that propulsive, insistent feel of the bass line. Yeah, I guess this is one of those songs that sort of I get a little listener fatigue on. I've mentioned Mm -hmm. a couple times every now and then we get those that kind of start pounding on my head a little bit. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, but I love Edge's playing, um, strong as anything this side of Sonic Youth and My Bloody Valentine. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think you'll agree with me here that these lyrics are really next level. I definitely, I, again, some of his most honest and moving. Definitely, this is territory he never explored before on record. Right. Um you know, what I get from them is a feeling of alienation from the world. And like in Ultraviolet, all the things that once gave comfort, um, whether that's a lover or God. And and there's also, you know, a look at your own hypocrisy, um, which are wrapped up in the lines, and I must be an acrobat to talk like this and act like that. Um, but there's also this feeling of self-preservation that comes from the frustration and anger that you can hear in these lyrics. Right. 
And I think it was Gavin Friday that said the chorus, don't let the bastards drag you down, is Bono talking to his critics, which does make some sense. Yeah. Um, but it should be also noted that in the, once again, reference kindergarten lyrics, um, they are very similar, except for the fact that they are delivered far uh, from the first person rather than the second person. The song is dedicated to and influenced by the work of Delmar Schwartz, whose first book, In Dreams Begin Responsibilities, of course, is quoted in the final verse. And we need to mention, of course, that the song is, um, that it stands out because of its time signature, which is in 12-8. Yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting time signature in that it's sort of like um, if 4-4 time and 3-4 time had a baby, mm -hmm. um, it goes... One, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, two, three, one, two, three. Um, and I think that it kind of gives the song sort of a circular feel. Right. Definitely. Okay, Bill. So um, now I think we're headed to a song that really is one of the band's masterpieces. I would agree with that. That's uh, Love is Blindness. Supposedly, Bono started working on this on piano on the Rattled Hum sessions and intended to give it to Nina Simone, one of his favorite singers, and mine. Uh, but ultimately, he recognized it was too good to give away, and I couldn't agree more. Um, the song came out of Gavin Friday, introducing Bono to the torch songs of Jacques Brel and Scott Walker. And I think you would agree that is very apparent. You know, a, a quick note on that. Um, in 1987-1988, uh, Gavin hosted a happening club at a restaurant in Dublin called Waterfront, where different musicians and comedians performed in a round-robin short set format, like a cabaret. Um, and a lot of Irish luminaries hung out at the club, like Hothouse Flowers, Planet, and of course Bono. Now, the club had two rules, no songs written after 1950, and no rock and roll were to be played, uh, which I think probably made it more interesting. Um, and I also think it stretched the musical palette. And I think the inspiration for Love is Blindness came out of that smoky cabaret feel. You can certainly hear influences of uh, German cabaret on Gavin Friday's debut solo record, Each Man Kills the Thing He Loves, um, which was released in 1989. And Gavin had always been a type of, I don't know, creative inspiration, creative director for the band ever since the Joshua Tree. Um, so it makes sense that this musical direction would have been in Bono's head, and it fits perfectly with the themes for the song. Uh, totally agree. Um, I think it's also fair to say the song channels Edge's failing marriage, uh, not for the first time on this record. Um, and then Bono also mixes those personal themes with imagery of metaphorical acts of terrorism. Um, Bono said, and I quote, the song has images of terrorism, bomb building, clockworks, and cold steel, a parked car. In a personal sense, I have observed the phenomenon of a person planting a kind of landmine that years later 
they will accidentally tread on and blow their lives to pieces. You can watch people doing it willfully, getting involved in actions they will pay a very heavy price for later. Trajectory is everything, end quote. So, you know, this is a subject matter and a kind of writing Bono would never have touched on or could even access a few years earlier. Yeah, and the music is so interconnected with the lyrics. I mean, take the very beginning, you know, you have that gothic organ opening that sounds halfway between a wedding and funeral march. Um, and this feeling of a march that could be for a funeral or a wedding is also picked up again by Bono's vocalizations of that tum, tum, da, dum, dum at the end of the song. Mm, I love that. I love that bit. Um, and I think that's another example of Gavin Friday turning Bono onto that German cabaret you mentioned. Uh, and how about that bridge? Another incredible bridge. A little death without mourning, no call and no warning. Baby, a dangerous idea that almost makes sense. Let's listen. A little death without mourning, no call and no warning. Baby, a dangerous idea that almost makes sense. I also found an interesting quote from author Atara Stein, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, who wrote that, quote, the singer knows that the image he creates of his lover is false, but is the only image that can satisfy him. He must perceive his beloved in idealized terms so she can reflect back to him the image of himself that he desires to see. I mean, that, I think that's a very interesting quote and on point. And I think that it correlates with this idea of a willful blindness that is at the lyrical core here. Um, I think we also need to mention the effect placed on Adam's baseline, which gives it a, a deep and pulsating sort of sound. You know, when I think of it, I always think of it as being the sound of a breaking heart. <laughs> um, and, you know, I did not know this, but the drum pattern for the song is taken from, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Of course, slowed down considerably. But I think that the real star here musically is is Edge. Yeah, I mean, Edge reaches down deep, um, deeper than he'd ever reach, and channels all the pain and recriminations of his failed marriage for that swirling cut-to-the-bone solo at the end. And also, even for that little mini break earlier that one note solo yeah. uh which is just i mean really i don't even know if you call these solos these are like these incredible expressions that color the song in a dark beauty um certainly his most expressive work edge here yeah and i mean bono has said uh, we're calling it the solo that he quote put everything into it all the feeling all the hurt all the angst Everything went into that soul.
say, I don't think that you need to understand English to get to the grief embedded in every element of this song. No question. Um, also, a final reference to the kindergarten uh, material, the version on there of Love is Blindness. It's so good. It's even darker, if you can imagine, than the one that concludes Octane Baby. Adam's bass gives it a kind of pathos. Um, I love it. Uh, in fact, this is the one kindergarten version I might prefer to the final version. Um, let's take a listen to that. And the ships we sail in stormy seas, it's the waves that crash the seven. But as much as I love that version, it does make me marvel at the incredible transformative production applied to what ends up on the final version. You mentioned the drums were pulled from I Still Haven't Found and heavily treated. And, um, you know, you as you recall, Eno did the same kind of heavily processed production on Mothers of the Disappeared, which was to that point, arguably U2's finest concluding song. But I think Love is Blindness exceeds even that. In fact, you could argue Love is Blindness on some days, at least, might be U2's deepest and emotionally complex creation in all of their catalog. Yeah, I really couldn't agree with you more there. Okay, then. There you have it. We made it. Octune Baby. Why don't you start... Uh, what's your takeaway on this record? Well, I didn't love this record upon first listen, but I could tell that it was worth the investment of repeat listenings, um, as so many of my favorite albums were. Mm. Um, you know, and like a lot of other fans, I did initially find it uh, disorienting. Um, now I see it as not just a great record, but as an extremely smart move by the band. Um, the musical winds were changing in the late 80s and early 90s, and U2, or more specifically, Bono and Edge, recognized that a seismic shift was taking place, and had they not chopped down that proverbial Joshua tree and took a dramatic change in direction, they were facing irrelevance. What's your take? Well, when Octune Baby was released, and we should say that was uh, November 18th, 1991, like... Almost everyone else at the time, I was experiencing, let's say, the aftershocks of Nirvana's Nevermind, which had just come out less than a month before. Um, a sea change, as you say, was taking place in music. And while U2 was still a big name, I don't think a lot of people felt they had anything new to offer. And I'm not sure I did either. Um, remembering, it wasn't just grunge happening. Um, Hip-hop was inching closer and closer to being the greater culture influence than rock and roll. The pop charts were dominated by stuff like MC Hammer's Can't Touch This, Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby, Technotronics, Pump Up the Jams, Naughty by Nature's OPP. 
but it wasn't just commercially. Creatively speaking, there were you know artists like Public Enemy and Ice Cube and Dr. Dre emerging as voices of the day. So I will admit, after the whole rattle and hum debacle, for me, U2 had definitely lost its luster. But I will tell you, unlike you, I loved Octoon Baby the minute I heard it. I mean, it excited me creatively. Um, it took only one listening of it, and I actually fell in love with U2 all over again. Um, I thought it then, and I think it now, Octoon Baby is U2's crowning achievement. Yeah, I mean, I do think now, I do think of it as their finest work. Um, the album with the greatest sense of cohesion within their discography. I still marvel over the fact that in the history of all who had reached a, quote, biggest band in the world, end quote, status, there's never been one that threw away all of its tropes and tools, all its tried and trues, and then went on to exceed its success commercially and artistically. Bowie was a masterful changeling, Prince and Neil Young, or, you know, two others, but these are singular artists, never encumbered by the inner workings of band dynamics. And, you know, the Beatles made massive leaps artistically and commercially, but they never consciously turned their backs on their strengths and reinvented themselves in the very name of survival. Yeah, I mean, we've discussed, you know, you two looking to Bowie's template of reinvention as a sustainable career path. Um, but I do think because of the massive success of Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum, as smart as the move of this reinvention was, you know, I mean, you have to acknowledge it was indeed risky. Oh, yeah. And and it's really, it's hard for me to grasp being at that level of success in your career and saying, all right, let's chuck it and do something completely different. Damn the consequences. I mean, can you imagine the anxiety? Plus, like you said, unlike Bowie, this was a band made up of four people that needed to pivot. And even with the power plays that Bono and Edge made in regards to the musical direction of the album, they did decide to remain a band and all contributed to making this album that's a masterpiece, which I think says a lot about their dedication to the band and to each other. Yeah, I mean, you and I agreed for this exploration of Octoon Baby, it was important to try and step into Larry and Adam's shoes and talk about the inner workings of band dynamics. How it must have felt feeling it slip away at Hansa. And I think we both agree that while Bono and Edge end up being right about pressing for a reboot in this so-called, you know, reinvention, this wasn't just any band they were blindsiding. U2 was held together by a unique bond of friendship that was absolutely pushed to the brink during the making of this record. And I think how the band pulled it together collectively, ultimately, is what makes the creative arc of this album such a fascination. And one of the true marvels of the finished record is knowing just how fragmented and ill-defined the material was when they entered Hansa Studios, and even when they left Hansa Studios, and how bold and assured and momentous it ends up being. Yeah, and you know, I do think that you, you have to mention... Larry's contributions of a humanizing element in the rhythm and Adam's uh, pure groove and funkiness are important contributors on the album, right? Mm -hmm. yep. But Edge's work, I mean, it is just next level, you yeah. know, and as he did on the War album and again on Rattle and Hum, he completely deconstructed his playing in pursuit of the perfect instrumentation and emotional feel to serve each song. There are still moments of, for lack of a better word, quintessential um, edginess, um, but the aggressive sounds on, you know, Zoo Station and The Fly are a reinvention of his playing, as are the heartrending 
Yeah. Blue note solos in Love is Blindness as examples. Um, you know, and I have to say of that, that latter solo, it's it's really the only guitar solo that's brought me to tears. But mm. anyway, I digress. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and for all the talk of modernizing and incorporating all these new outside influences, Edge somehow managed to be even more innovative than he's ever been, and it's here on Octung Baby you find his most thrilling work and his most expressive guitar solos of his career. I couldn't agree more. This guy is next level. Yeah. You know, and similarly, Bono also deconstructs his own lyrical language which i think you mentioned in part one of the episode nope. um and at times even his vocal performance to suit the the personal and intimate exploration of spiritual and romantic alienation i mean the guy was already an exceptional lyricist but i think the more vulnerable and less formal language including all the times he says baby um mm -hmm. make the lyrics much more human and relatable yeah you know and i mean then you have those overlays the multiple aspects and meanings in the lyrics all of which lead up to all of these interesting multiple interpretations you know it, 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 truly a transition and then you have irony and humor showing up for the very first time in U2 songs which adds another new color um and which the band of course explore in greater depth during the zoo tv tour which we will talk about later yeah, I totally agree. I mean, these are, and I've said it, I think, multiple times now, these are Bono's best lyrics. He finally reveals something incredibly relatable. Gone are the platitudes, the big sweeping statement songs. Instead, these are deep, dark tales about the frailties of love, beset by betrayal, and the fallacies of the human condition. Um, he's not up here. He's right here looking eye to eye forehead to forehead to the listener it feels that intimate um and so look you two had every reason to question whether they still had a place or whether they could still be a relevant force in the pop landscape but as it turns out it's the band's own self-doubt that crept into the making of octane baby and the songs that emerged that helped make it such a compelling record agree agree but, you know, one thing that I, I wanted to mention before we move on is the album cover, um, which, you know, was also a huge departure for the band. Um, mm -hmm. The cover was designed um, by longtime YouTube collaborator Steve Avril and, and another fellow named Sean McGrath. Um, the 16 photos, which were shot by Anton Corbin over several shoots in Berlin, the Canary Islands, and Morocco, they were, as we know, they're arranged in a grid pattern, and they convey a wide range of feelings. But the big shocker here yeah. <laughs> was the use of some color photographs. I mean, the band hadn't used a color photograph on a cover since October, which, as we know, is really one of the most hilariously wooden <laughs> photos of band ever. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, and I mean, also shockingly in some of these photos is that it looks like the band members are actually having a good time. You know, they're, <laughs> they're not constipated. Um, and they certainly play into the whole trashy and throwaway aesthetic the band were playing with. Adam has said that some of the images were, quote, born out of a desire to confound expectations, unquote. And including, I including the one with his willy out. Including the one with his willy out. Yes. Okay, indeed. good. We, we yeah, and I mean, we, but I mean, I think that they really do succeed, though, with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, maybe they were trying in some ways to take the edge off the fact that what you had inside the album um, was really their darkest record ever. But but I do think that it's very successful and it ends up going on to be quite an iconic 
image for the band. And and style of layout. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, um, yeah. so you 2 so-called reinvention, as we've said about 47,000 times in this episode, <laughs> uh, is certainly on display here on Octane Baby. But it would not completely be fulfilled until the Zoo TV tour, where they made it clear that they were willing to mock their overly earnest and serious past and subvert it into a far more sustainable existence. Indeed. And all of that we will get into next time on the Into the Heart of YouTube podcast.